Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Onward to a talk on a contemporary take on karma. What is karma? Why is it important? How does it work? Well, there are different views of karma that were propagated by the Buddha. And karma as an idea was something that, of course, predates Buddhism. Buddhism goes back 2,500 years. Karma goes back well over 3,000 years. And all different spiritual paths in the Indus Valley region had different conceptions of what karma was. The Brahmins, <clears throat> the Jains, the Hindus had various different uh, belief systems wrapped around it. The Hindus actually used karma as a way to justify the caste system. In many suttas, the Buddha does present the universe is a closed system uh, with a kind of mechanistic quality that keeps track of our actions and doles out just uh, retribution if we've done painful things. In one sutta, the Vipaka Sutta, the Buddha says, friends intentionally taking life, stealing, or other rampant misconduct leads directly to a living hell, then a rebirth as a common animal or a hungry ghost. You would be reborn into this realm where you would have constant craving with an absolute inability to feel satiated. The hungry ghost was this sort of spectral figure that had this gigantic belly and appetite with this very tiny little mouth. It could never fill up its appetites. There's also mixed up in this mechanistic view this very strong... Uh, reliance on the concept of rebirth. Your just comeuppance for bad acts will either come in this lifetime or in a future birth. Uh, and that's the way they sort of justified the obvious objection to this conception of karma, which is why does it seem that people get away with all kinds of shit without bad things happening to them? For example, why do we have this fucking administration? How could these people have attained positions of power given the lives that they've led and the, and the words that they speak? If you haven't guessed this kind of uh, approach or interpretation of karma, I find utterly uncompelling. I don't see any empirical evidence for it. I'm a very empirical guy. I do not like to have belief systems foisted on me where I have to have leaps of faith. I like to actually be able to have not only hard science uh, behind my interpretations and to rely upon, but I also like to be able to see for myself before I believe something. And I do not see how this doctrine that I could possibly personally experience. I've never also frankly believed in rebirth. It's just not something that I 
find uh, intellectually appealing. It's never been that for me. So I'm acknowledging that I have my own personal take on this. And fortunately, the Buddha actually proposed an entirely different uh, interpretation of karma as well. In a famous, famous central sutta to the Kalamas, the Buddha says, if there is nothing after death, if there is no rebirth, if there is no fruition of actions externally, i.e. you do something and then something bad happens to you, even if you get away with it, in other words, the Buddha says, in this present life, if you act harmlessly and, kind, and kindly and with compassion, you will live free of agitation. You will have a mind that's purified. But if you act harmfully, if you act out of aggression, then you will live in a mind that is distressed and uncomfortable, and your mind will not be a, a pure environment where you can relax into. So this is a psychological proposition. The Buddha is not saying here that ne things will necessarily happen to you externally if you mistreat other people. The Buddha is proposing that there is some quality in the mind, an innate moral system that punishes us when we act selfishly, harmfully, when we act needlessly um, in a way that uh, doesn't consider the well-being of others and only considers our own well-being. So, is this true? Is this interpretation valid? Do we have reason to give any credence to this? Is this wishful thinking? Well, actually, the purpose of tonight's talk is to propose to you that there's actually a lot, a sort of uh, almost like an overabundance of clinical evidence now that shows, in fact, that the mind is hardwired to punish us for antisocial acts and is hardwired to reward us for pro-social acts. And I'm going to go over some of that right now. So our great survival advantage as a species is our ability to connect, to attach, to form uh, what for the bulk of human uh, evolution was called small tribes or hunter-gatherer clans that we would live our entire lives in. Uh, human beings, we do not run fast, we don't fight well, we don't scamper up trees, we don't uh, burrow holes quickly and, and you know, find shelter in the ground. As a species, we would most likely fall under the category of prey rather than predator in many ways. But we do have a skill that uh, we excel at uh, far beyond any other species on Earth, and that is the ability to form uh, alliances. And we form two kinds of alliances with two different kinds of attachment systems. The first of these psychobiological attachment systems is specific individuals. This is called attachment or attachment theory. And the basic idea is that we are born to connect and attach to a caregiver and then eventually specific individuals over the course of our life for emotion co-regulation and for protection 
for getting our needs met. So when we're infants, we can't survive on our own. The, our core drive is to connect with a parent, a guardian, to not only take care of us, but to also anticipate our needs. And also, when we are upset, sad, frightened, angry, distressed, the role of the caregiver is to soothe us. And it's through this alliance with a caregiver that we develop the tools of emotion regulation. And if you ever would like to read about this, there's so many great books, but the work especially of Alan Shore, who's written four tomes on it and is the most respected and clinical neuropsychologist in the field. Um, he's even found the area of the right hemisphere, the orbital frontal, that holds these early attachment patterns known as internal working models and sustains them for our life. So we have these deep set patterns to connect with specific individuals and those patterns are developed very early in life. So if you have an anxious attachment with a caregiver, you'll have anxious attachment with significant others in your life. If you have a secure connection with a parent, you probably will have a secure connection with uh, significant others in your life, best friends and romantic partners. So this system uh, works with the higher emotions. It uh, creates feelings of anxiety if we don't have a secure connection, feelings of confidence and willingness to explore the world. But there's an entirely different uh, attachment system which could be referred to as tribal affiliation. Tribal affiliation has nothing to do with specific individuals. You don't really, in the second attachment system, care so much that it's about a specific individual, it's mostly that you feel connected to some kind of community or group, some kind of uh, uh, larger social system. If you don't have that, if you don't feel that you are well connected with some group, some tribe, some larger social organization of individuals. They have been discovered now by uh, neuropsychologists such as Matthew Lieberman, Naomi Eisenberger, Giorgio Silani, a large group of psychologists at Munich, Triest, Heidelberg, and Japan. I could go on. Uh, if you just look up social neuroscience, you'll find all the different studies. But basically, the agreement is now that the anterior cingulate cortex is the hub of the tribal circuit in the brain. So whereas uh, the attachment with specific individuals creates emotions like longing and sadness when we feel detached from the love, and it creates feelings like joy when we connect with someone, a new partner in life, but your tribal Circuits have their own set of emotions. Guess what pride and shame fall under? These are tribal emotions. They are actually activated by this second circuit. And uh, according to um, Lieberman uh, and Eisenberger, this circuit essentially piggybacked over the course of evolution to create literal feelings of pain physiological pain when we feel disconnected from a tribe, from a group. We feel 
emotional vagal vagus gut feelings of distress when we feel disconnected with people we love, but we also feel emotional pain and physical pain when we don't feel connected to uh, something larger, a group, a community, um, because out of the 1.8 million years of human evolution, all but 10,000 of those years was spent in hunter-gatherer tribes where we'd spend our entire life with a small community looking after each other, sharing our resources. And if you didn't have pro-tribal emotions, if you simply were allowed to you know, be selfish and follow the dopamine and, you know, just eat all the food you collected without sharing it with the others to hoard the resources, then you would eventually be outcast from the group and that would mean death. Because an individual on its own living for the bulk of human civilization over the course of human evolution died. Period. End of sentence. You would be found by another clan, you would be attacked, you would be essentially prey for predators, you would not have anybody share the resources with you when you were sick. So over the course of natural selection, we develop these pro-tribal emotions. In the Devadaha Sutta, um, uh, well, I'll go, I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, I just want to uh, first lay out a little bit more before I jump to some of the suttas. So it's also from this need to connect with um, people, not just specific individuals, but with groups that we further developed empathy. Empathy is the ability not just to feel uh, emotionally distressed or sad due to somebody that we're very close with, but humans have the ability to actually feel distress when we see a complete stranger going through pain or emotional um, uh, disrepair, dysregulation. They've found that that's in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that activates tribal, uh, tribal empathy. And again, the empathy is there to solidify our connections. Given the importance of these tribal bonds, it's now been proposed by a wide group from Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Leibomorsky and developmental psychologists like Paul Bloom and Karen Wynn that we are actually born. We are born with innate moral systems. Innate. Which means that a child, if you show babies in their studies uh, puppet play, and you, you put basically a bunch of candy in between two puppets, and you show the little babies this play, and in one play, it's obviously not the finest bit of uh, dramatic literature we have, but you show in one play the puppet giving, sharing the candy, the babies will clap and smile and approve. But if you show the puppet, one puppet turning its back and the other puppet stealing the candy, the babies will get upset and start to cry. They won't have any concept of good and bad, but they have innately wired negative emotional responses towards greed, towards accumulation at the expense of others. And babies have natural positive emotions when they see gestures of sharing and altruism. 
Haight and Sandra Leomorski have done many, many studies. If you want to do one yourself, it goes like this. You can show yourself how this works. And another thing that this study will show if you do this research yourself is that pro or all tribal emotions, not just pro, but uh, negative tribal emotions arise over time. They're not fast acting. It takes time for the emotional brain to process shame and pride. It doesn't happen like this. So here's what you do. You get 10 $10 bills. So this, this study is going to cost you $100. But you'll, you'll learn $100 worth of information from this. <laughs> or you can take my word for it. And what you do is you find 10 different people, and you each give them $10, and you say to five of them, I want you to spend this $10 on yourself. Go at it. This is for you. You're a good person. I want you to spend this money on yourself. So they'll buy half a lunch from Whole Foods. <laughs> and then you say to the other group, I want you to spend this $10 on somebody else. Okay? Now the next day, you ask them how they feel about that whole transaction, and both people will feel pretty positive. They'll both be talk about it, and they'll both have positive emotions. But wait three months. Then come back. When you talk to the five people you told to spend the $10 on themselves, none of them statistically will remember how they spent it, and none of them will feel any boost in self-esteem or pride. But if you talk to the people that you told to spend the $10 on someone else, they all will remember with great detail who they gave it to, why they made the decision, and they will still feel a boost in self-esteem, even though you gave them the money, they will still feel a boost in self-esteem. Furthermore, a group of psychologists at Heidelberg wrote um, a study, a clinical study called Positive Feelings Deriving from Pro-Tribal Acts. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, and they found that there are specific serotonin receptors in the cingulate that reward us over time for taking pro-tribal acts as well as those negative emotion signals in the same exact region, the anterior cingulate cortex, which create emotional pain. Ed Diner did a meta-analysis of all the different positive, clinic, positive happiness clinical studies that were done in the 80s and 90s when Seligman was the head of the... Um, this uh, Psychiatric Association of America. And um, they found, when they did this massive meta-analysis, that a rich and fulfilling social life and a network of close social connections is directly correlated with our well-being. The happiest 10% of us are those that regularly engage in pro-social acts. So... Let's return to the Buddha. In the Dabita Sutta, the Buddha says that karma appears in three ways. While some of it happens quickly, much of it takes years, if not many, many years, to be experienced. So what we're learning from this is that, one, that you don't get rewarded immediately for taking actions that you feel proud of 
that essentially secure your bonding with a community, which make you feel that you're giving back to a larger group of people, that you are in some way positive. Two, in the Devadaha Sutta, the Buddha says that whatever feelings one experiences, they're all caused by karma. So the Buddha is saying that way karma, or the results of our actions, our experience, is not so much in thought or in the higher emotions, but it's in the very gut feelings of discomfort, the gut feeling of shame, or the positive Vedana that we feel when we feel pride. It's a very core, deep emotional state. It's not a higher emotion, which has a far more, um, what you would call a cognitive tone to it. So, uh, what we, to summarize so far, um, one, there's a lot of research now that shows that the brain is hardwired to reward us for pro-tribal acts, not just for connecting to specific individuals and families. It's not all about family, no matter what people have told you. It's also about connecting with a larger community beyond just taking care of a wife, a, a husband, children, a partner, whatever. It's about connecting with a community. When we don't have a community, we s essentially set ourselves up for negative emotional states, feelings of emptiness, lack of purpose, lack of meaning. In my own life, after 9-11, I was, while I was an art and practitioner, and I was studying with Noah, who was the teacher here then, um, I was working in advertising. And increasingly over the time, as I, I had been that point sober for, um, but 2001, I'd been sober for seven years. So, all of the ability to somehow live in denial that my livelihood wasn't amounting to anything of benefit to other human beings, that so much of my life was simply to make a paycheck so that I could pay the rent, that became, for me, unsustainable. The entire capitalist message was no longer anything that I could buy into. The myth of financial security, which frankly doesn't exist for any, anyone except for the, the 1%, as it were. The rest of us uh, will never know what that is. And I had to come to grips with the fact that my life felt increasingly meaningless without any higher purpose and fortunately, this was around the time that I started reading uh, social neuroscience and became aware that the reason wasn't due to that I wasn't taking good enough care of myself or that I wasn't meditating enough, because I was on both fronts. It wasn't because I wasn't getting enough therapy, because I was, certainly. I was working with a Buddhist therapist every week. It wasn't because I wasn't in a relationship. I was. The reason that I had a complete lack of 
purpose or deep sense of meaning in my life is because I was not experiencing on a regular basis that my endeavor was leading directly to the happiness and well-being of others. And so I made the insane decision to leave advertising and do whatever I do now, which is from the perspective of uh, my life is completely crowdsourced, frankly. I don't... I live entirely by donation. I live on a fraction of what I used to live. But I am so much more happier. My life is now meeting with spiritual practitioners on a daily basis, offering uh, spiritual counseling and teaching. And I make just enough to survive, and I'm fucking thrilled about it. (laughs) So this is not just, for me, a talk about sharing a lot of clinical science. It's also a very personal talk, which is that if there's a feeling of a lack of meaning in life, it's not necessarily because we haven't written the great American novel or because we haven't yet pursued um, some creative... Uh, dream, which is important. I've given talks on how important creativity is, and I would never want people to give up on that because that's an essential thing to balance in on life. But to live an authentic life means to give equal consideration that our endeavors and our work is of benefit to others, not just ourselves. If we want to essentially experience what I believe is karma, good karma, the benefits of our actions. I've found personally that any work where we have to intellectualize the benefit we're doing, like for instance, if you like me, work, for me, working in marketing, even though I started for a while during the transition from advertising to being a Buddhist teacher, which is a really fucked up thing to do when you say it out loud, but uh, during the transition, I did a lot of volunteering with graphic design for yoga centers that were starting up and for uh, pro bono work for um, nonprofits. But still, even then, I wasn't directly seeing that my work was benefiting someone else directly. And the circuits in the interior cingulate that reward us for pro-tribal acts are experiential. They're not intellectual. They really want to see in some way. So I'm not telling you to quit your jobs. Uh, What I am saying is that where there's suffering or lack of deep fulfillment in life, it's worth investigating. Could this possibly also be that I'm not on a regular basis seeing and and endeavoring to be of benefit to other people, to share resources, to give back, to be a positive uh, element in other people's life. Fortunately, this kind of karma, view of karma, that states of greater sense of inner esteem and pride directly are attributable over time to take for cementing our relationships with others is easy to verify. Try it. In my life, I've seen it to be true. 
And other people, I've worked with now hundreds upon hundreds of spiritual practitioners in the 13 years I've been a teacher, and I've been fortunate to see that so many of them have found a greater sense of purpose, some just by joining a 12-step community, just by joining a community where they meet regularly. If you come here, if this is part of your community, connect, do the hard work, risk the vulnerable and introduce yourself with someone, meet and sustain and connect with a larger group of people and do it in such a way that you offer yourself in some way. You simply listen to someone when they're suffering and we don't try to tell them what to do. We just create a safe container. Just that can positively create feelings of value because as human beings, when we co-regulate, which is essentially to develop limbic resonance. We sit and we get close and we disclose our feelings and we listen to other people's feelings and we naturally, according to Thomas and uh, I can't remember the other guy who wrote A General Theory of Love, we naturally begin to co-regulate and it makes us feel better. It makes us feel deep purpose. It makes us feel a buoyancy in our lives. So finally, uh, there's a lot of meditations that can help develop a greater degree of empathetic consideration for others. There's one study called the, uh, uh, the meditation, meditation regulates anterior insula activity during empathy for social pain. I don't know how they thought that was a catchy topic. But <laughs> anyway, what they found is that people who meditate more who especially do reflective meditations, whether meta or reflecting on virtue, uh, reflecting on uh, skills that they've dedicated to others, work that they've done towards others, actually begin to thicken the insula. And what that means is, over time, we automatically begin to consider others, the ramifications of our acts. We take into consideration other people when we make decisions. It becomes far more automatic. And if it's far more automatic, then it becomes easier to live a skillful life. And lastly, another study by the National Academy of Sciences on social relationships and longevity, they found that the more we undertake pro-tribal acts where we volunteer and help others the longer we live. So for no other reason than you just want to live longer, go for it. Thank you for listening. Let's meditate. So... Finding a really comfortable seated position, and all that means is balance. Balance, 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 balance. So if you like, feel, just squinch your buttocks for a moment, and then squinch your, uh, your shoulders, and then keep those two sensations in alignment, the shoulders over the buttocks, and then squinch your ears a little, and keep your ears over your shoulders, over your buttocks. If that's too complex, then try this. Simply tilt your head a little bit back and up like you're looking at a very tall building. And 
That will prevent your neck and head from slouching if you keep your head like you're looking up towards a high-rise building. So just try to counteract slouching. It's the antithesis of a good posture is slouching. So we'll do our usual three breaths which are geared to relax the vagal vagus nerve and send a message up to the midbrain telling the autonomic nervous system that we are okay. We're not being attacked. We can settle down. So you don't need to know all that. All you need to know is take a full in-breath through your nose and lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears. And hold those shoulders up for an extra beat and then breathe out through your mouth and drop those shoulders and gently, if you feel like it, pull them back to open up your chest. And that sends a very strong message to midbrain limbic structures that you are not in any danger. And then for the second full in-breath through the nose, pull in that belly really tight, like you're trying to lose two inches from your waistline and then breathe out through the mouth and see if you can cultivate a soft belly. Just cultivate a soft belly that you can breathe into for the rest of this meditation. Again, that sends a message up through the insula to the midbrain saying, hey, we're okay. No threat, no panic, everything's okay down here. And finally, the last long, smooth in-breath through the nose in this series and squinch the muscles in your face, really ugly little pinched face, locked jaw, squinched eyes, squinching the nose, furrowing borrowing the, the, the brow, whatever it is, just do it and then relax, breathe out. And just let your jaw hang loose, really soften the micro-muscles around the eyes, release the brow, and encourage your eyes in the eye sockets to just take a nap, which means to not move around, bouncing around behind closed eyelids. So see if you can cultivate that feeling of truly arriving in life. You know, when you've taken a long trip, you've traveled for thousands of miles, you got off the plane, you take a bus or cab to a really lovely destination, you finally arrived and you put your bags down and you just find a really comfortable seat where you can just drink in the moment of arriving. 
you've got nothing to do, nowhere to go, and really you've got right now no one that you have to please. You don't have to give a damn what anybody else thinks. And that's really the disposition that we want to cultivate. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to please. So for the first part, we'll just sit in silence and I encourage you to select what we call an anchor, an ongoing set of sensations to keep in the foreground of your awareness and that will keep you in the present. One thing we know very well from a lot of research is that when you allow the mind to wander, it wanders to places that cause stress, stressful thoughts, stressful memories. If you, however, give the mind a task that's very present, time-oriented, that you will, in task-positive mode, feel better. You feel more relaxed, more at peace. So we're going to give it a very simple task that doesn't require a lot of effort. You could, for example, choose as your anchor, the object you keep in mind, the feeling of breathing. Just find the sensations of breathing in and the sensations of breathing out in your body. Could be the upward energy from the belly to the chest, the breathing in, and then the release, the collapse of the chest, the energy moving back down the body. Could be the feeling of air entering the tip of the nose. Could be subtle movements in the shoulders. Just feel the body breathing, and while you do it, at first, I consider counting your breath. So just think one as you breathe in, two as you breathe out, three as you breathe in, four as you breathe out. When you reach five, start counting back down. So five on the in, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. Just keep counting up and down for a little while paying special attention to the pause between out-breaths and in-breaths, that's when we tend to wander away. If you don't want to work with the breath, that's fine. Just listen to the sounds occurring without judging or visualizing what's creating sounds. Or you could even use the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Listening to the sounds, viewing the closed eyelid visuals, Just viewing what you experience behind closed eyelids as a kind of abstract film that you're staying with. Now it doesn't, you don't have to push away any thoughts, you just need to keep your anchor always in the foreground of awareness. Eventually, if you do, 
thoughts will become less discursive. If, on the other hand, you do find that you slip away from the present, frequently that's okay. Simply, we just respond with patience and kindness, with no frustration. If nothing else, just have this meditation be a time where you don't in any way criticize yourself, judge yourself, shame yourself. Nothing but love for what you're doing. And if you have to bring the mind back a thousand times, it's just like bringing a little baby back from wandering away from safety into a dangerous part of the park. You just keep gently bringing the baby back. And over time, it stays put.
So at this point, you can allow your anchor to recede into the background of awareness, the sounds or the breath, not pushing it out of awareness, but not keeping it in the front stage of attention. I like you first to visualize or remember, bring to mind some time in your life where you felt really well connected to a group of people. Could be a time in school, high school, college, after college, a camp, a community, a small community beyond just family or a romantic partner with close friends, but you felt a part of a larger community. And just hold that time in your mind and just as you hold this reflection, just feel into the body and see what it triggers, what it activates. What do you feel when you reflect on this time without steering? Sometimes it might bring up both a feeling of comfort, but also melancholy if we don't feel that connection in our life right now. Sadness for a lack of secure bonds, or it could be we're holding an image from our present life where we feel very connected. Bring up an image or a reflection of a time where you felt disconnected, perhaps new in a new town, college, place where you didn't have a sense of community. And what did that feel like when you hold that memory? Contrasting the feeling of being connected through support and mutuality and the feelings of not being connected. In a practice, the Buddha calls Sila Nusati, bring to mind an action that you've done completely for the well-being of another or others. 
reflect on a time where you put aside what was easy or comfortable for yourself and did and acted on the behalf of others, gave resources, shared resources, offered attention and care when it wasn't convenient, picked up the phone when it wasn't easy. And just see, how does it feel knowing that this is something that you've done and can continue to do? What do you feel when you bring up this image? See if you could bring to mind the face of someone, not someone who was a direct close friend, a family member, even a romantic partner, but just someone that you helped. Bring to mind a skill that you could develop or already have that could be used not just for the benefit of yourself but for the benefit of others. The point of meditation is not just to develop internal awareness or mindfulness as it's called and to develop tranquility through concentration but also to incline the mind towards acts that are skillful. The Buddha had so many different reflection meditations but one he always promoted was Reflection on gratitude for the acts of others and also for recognition of our own skillful, compassionate, kind 
actions, to develop appreciation. For when we appreciate what we do for others, it makes it more likely that we'll continue to do so in the future. So whenever you feel so inclined, very slowly open your eyes and just look at the ground in front of you and see if you can integrate sight into the embodied awareness that you've cultivated. Sight is, of course, a very rich sense. And if we simply just look around the room and take in all the objects, what we will lose awareness of is the breath, the body, feelings, internal states. And when we do that, we lose all of the messages being sent by the right brain encouraging us to connect with others. When we live disembodied lives, we lead disconnected lives. So, 